Welcome to the Landmark Theaters podcast. In this episode, actor Bruce Dern sits down for a wide-ranging discussion about his new film, The Mustang, as well as seemingly every other movie he's ever made. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. What did you think of The Mustang? Well, my name is Scott Mance, and this gentleman is the legend, Bruce Dern. Thank you for coming. I just uh, thought this movie was exquisite and beautiful and profound, so so deeply moving and superbly acted. I, you know, what was your first take when you were reading the screenplay? Uh, what was your take on the character of Miles? Well, in my career, I would say I've read three scripts upon reading them that I knew had to be made as films. Whether, is that loud enough now? Huh? Yeah, we're good. <laughs> okay. okay. I, I, I've read three scripts up front that I felt were movies that had to be made. And uh, whether I was in them or not, they had to be made. And all three came my way, so I did them. Um, the first was Coming Home. The second was Nebraska. And the third was this movie. And the reason they have to be made is, uh, when I got in the business originally in 1958, early 59, uh, I began under contract to Mr. Kazan. And he had five of us. He had uh, Rip Torn, Pat Hingle, Geraldine Page, Brucey Dern from Winnetka, <laughs> and Lee Remick. And, uh, your face reminds me of Lee Remick immediately. Made her day. <laughs> no, she's a great-looking dame and also became quite a good actress uh, <laughs> later on in her life. But So um, I was always interested in what makes people behave the way we do, particularly in times of stress. And that's why I became an actor. And uh, I passed that on to Laura, who's done a good job at the same thing. She asked me, she asked me one day when she was nine years old, she said, what's the drill, Dad? I mean, how do I do this? I said, well, there's two things. Number one is, you gotta learn how to dance. And she said, no, what, uh, what do you mean? I said, the greatest crippler of actors is behind the camera intimidation. It's not personal. Walk away from it. Don't go to your dressing room. Hang on the set, stay in your own thing and realize everybody wants to get out of there by 6.30. So, and they pay some asshole to walk around at five o'clock to make you nervous looking at his watch all the time so that everybody's nervous. So they all want to get out, they all want to do what they do, and that's not personal, so dismiss that. And the second is, take risks. Go out on the edge of the cliff and take roles other actresses won't play. So she starts out, she's a blind girl in masks, she's, uh, you know, all things, and now this last year, I don't know how many of you saw that movie, she did The Tale, the that was, uh, 
on television, and there's another movie that had to be made. I mean, there's another story that had to be made. And the hard thing for Laura on that was that the lady who wrote it and directed the movie was the girl. So every day she's looking in the face and the eyes of the girl that all happened to. And HBO, for example, they made the girl 13 because they said they had to. She was only 11. So that tells you. Anyway, back to Miss Dietremont and her movie. So I went and she wanted to meet with me, and so we sat down, and I said, at that time, there was a 33-year-old girl from France. I flunked French. I flunked Spanish. So I don't know what they're saying. When we got to Carson City, Nevada, the entire crew was either French or from Belgium. Now, Matthias is from Belgium, so they all got along fine, but I didn't know what the hell was going on. You know, I mean, it, as soon as they yell cut, they're into speaking their languages. So, uh, and I was pissed because it was during the Dodgers World Series, not this year, but a year ago. And uh, every night I'd drive home, the game was starting, and even in Reno, they didn't even have good radio reception. So that sucked. But uh, what I liked about it was she put a dynamic that is really, in terms of sports, it's a contest. But it's a contest between two beings. One is human, one is an animal. And when they first come in to see me at the place, and I tell them what's going to go on, you've seen it, you understand. And I say to them right away, it's about two things. First of all, two words, trust and respect. If you don't respect him, he'll know it before you ever know you've thought it. And you will never touch him. After about 10 days, like I say here, you might be able to get a saddle on him, and then maybe a week later, you could even ride him. But the reason you have three months in this program is because it'll take you 100 days to ever put your hands on him. He is never, ever going to let you touch him. He's never seen you or anybody like you. He's never been put in a pen. And in that particular reserve, that's 78 square miles without fencing for those horses, uh, the one that's 40 miles east of Reno, I mean, east of Carson City. And uh, so you see at the beginning how they herd them down and then siphon some off. Otherwise, they've never seen a person. You can't walk in there. You can't fly over in a little plane or anything they did with the helicopter because that was part of herding them down so they would run because it terrifies them. That's why when they go in the barn and all that lightning and everything, well, that sounds like chopper blades. Yeah. Well, there you go at the end of the movie. The guy is riding the horse perfectly, and a news helicopter goes over, yeah. and the horse dumps him. And um, what I like that Laura did is she made the uh, tapestry a contest. But what she really made was a love story because um, 
I'm very touched in the movie, and I was there the day they shot it. Rex, who was the name of the, who was a famous wrangler in Hollywood. I've been on many, many movies. He was on the Cowboys where I had to kill John Wayne, and so that goes to 1972. So I go back a long ways with him. Wow. But he was our wrangler because he uh, breaks horses for a living. Mm -hmm. So he had to be there. And he's my age. He's about, I'm 82. He's probably 80. And... Um, The first thing he told Matthias is he said, now look, there will be no other human being in that ring with you, including me. Once I close the gate, you're his and he's yours. And uh, you gotta make it work. And I love that dynamic. And I love the way she was hoping to approach it. But she'd never done a movie. She did a 20-minute short three years ago, which she showed two years ago at Sundance, and she won a prize for it. And Redford was interested in her. And he asked her, do you have other stuff? I mean, do you do, uh, uh, you know, do you have another script or anything you're working on? She said, yeah, I do. And she told him the idea, and he said, make it. Wow. And, uh, I mean, right. finished the script, so he put her in the the writer's thing he has there, and they developed it, and then he's been a saint for it. I mean, he's there's two guys in my career that I have seen that have put their money where their mouth was. Bob Redford and his dream of Sundance, and Clint Eastwood along with an assist from Merv Griffin for Carmel. And uh, Carmel's almost getting over-commercialized now, but... Uh, that wasn't their intent, but it lives. I mean, there's a big antique store in the middle of Carmel Valley. As you walk out the door and look in the backyard, there's a woman there with goats and stuff, not in the store's backyard, but her house backyard. She's still there. Her name's Doris Day, and she's got, she's 98, and she's got every kind of critter there is, and some of them are lame, and you know, so she helps them and everything like that. And then just a mile away from her lives Kim Novak, who has the same kind of thing in Carmel. And they're both like, they're, they're recluses, but they're not really recluses, you know. They're, uh, but anyway, you don't want to hear about that. But this movie. <laughs> this, Actually, I think we kind of do want to hear about this. This but no. movie, uh, <laughs> I was excited because I felt it said something in a uniquely different way. And because of Matthias Schoenert, who I didn't even know who he was when I came. I mean, I don't see Belgian movies. Uh, I know they can ride bikes there because Eddie Merckx won the tour six times. But uh, I didn't know much about it. In this movie, he gives, uh, for me, because it's the first time I saw him, he gives far and away the best first-time performance I've ever seen by an actor. Because his range of emotions in this movie are very tough. And uh, I never knew, and I'm very good at, because I work so personally and everything's gotta be so real to me. It's all about conversation. And Laura understood that, although she never really directed actors. She was an actress, she worked for 10 years in movies. But um, she said to me, what, what do I do 
to get the actors to act. I said, you'll never do that, madam, because you can never ask an actor to act because your movie's dead if they act. It's about behavior. It's about conversations. And the minute they s use the word act, then they start acting. Well, you hired them because of the way they look and who they are. I was in a car in the middle of Nowheresville, Nebraska, with Will Forte in Nebraska. And he said to me the first day, he said, Jesus Christ, I'm so intimidated. First there's Alexander, and then there's you. And he said, what am I doing here? And I said, well, you sent Alexander a tape of two of the scenes from his movie that he'd sent you. And he believed you. So just be you. It's not MacGruber, bud. It's not Saturday Night Live. You know, I'm not funny. I'm not a comedian. I don't know what it is. But I know if things are real and you have craftsmen and artists like a Quentin or like an Alexander that are there with you who write this shit, you can't really go wrong if you follow the map. You know, it's like my first day, well, second or third day, really, on Monster. Patty Jenkins, who directed it, who's now a big whiz, but uh, she wrote that and, and carried it around for 10 years before anyone would make it. Um, she had a scene um, with Christina Ricci and uh, Charlize where they come out of the bowling alley and the first time you see the physical attraction to each other outside the bowling alley where they really go at each other and it's supposed to lead to this. And she says... I don't know how to do an F-word scene. I don't know how to do, uh, you know, uh, lovemaking and frantic and all that kind of stuff. I said it's very simple. Make it real. You have it outside the bowling alley. Don't ever take it anyplace else. Have it there. And she said, but how do I get them to do it? You go up to each actress and you tell her you have 90 seconds to take every piece of clothing off that girl that you can get. And she'll have the same, only she'll only have 60 seconds. So then, and that's all Kazan to me. I mean, that's how we all began. You know, he'd go up and he'd say to Marlon Brando, for example, and on the waterfront, I'm only going to do this take one more time. You walk up this ramp, the very last shot of the movie, and just walk up like you're exhausted and you're defeated and, and you won't do it. He says, I don't want to do it anymore, you know. I, I, I've done it enough. He says, you're doing it again. And so Brando goes up that long walk, and all I can do is keep saying that fucking Kazan, that Jewish-Greek immigrant from Constantinople is making me walk up this goddamn thing. And it was perfect, and that's all he tries to do. Use what's real around you. Everybody always used to say to me, why'd you leave the theater? Why didn't you stay on Broadway? Because on a set, you're in the theater. You got 85 people there that are bored shitless, and they want to get out of there. They've seen every scene made. They've heard everything said. Sometimes they get excited. Sometimes they don't. On Nebraska, the first day, Alexander Payne said to me, um, you see anything here on the set this morning you've never seen before your first day? And I said, yeah, I do. I see everybody seems to be pulling their oar. And he said, well, 
basically, I hope that's because we have 91 people here, crew members. 78 have worked every day on every film I've ever made. Quentin, same way. He's got a core group of about 35 people, and he tells them when they're going to work, and so they know to set the time apart, and then they go off and have their thing, and when he calls, they go do it. Then Alexander Payne said to me, and this is getting to lore, he said to me, I wonder if you'd do something for Faden Papa Michael, who is the cameraman, uh, and I, that we're not sure you've ever done before. And I said, uh, I told you this last night, and I said, well, what's that? And he said, never show us anything. Let us find it. And I knew for the first time in my career, 60 some odd years, that I had a partner. I'd never met Al Pacino. I saw him at a party. He came up to me and he said, you know, everybody back at the Actors Studio, we're both Actors Studio members in New York, is talking about your performance in this film. I haven't seen it. And I went right over to Brad Gray, who was there, who was passed now, but he was running Paramount. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, you know, Al Pacino does not have a screener yet. And it was just after Christmas and so on and so on. So he said, tell him I have one tomorrow morning with his paper on his doorstep. The next day at noon, Al Pacino called me and he said, Bruce, Al. I said, yes, sir. He said, dead silence for about 30 seconds. How did you do that? I said, exactly what Alexander said to me. He said, never let us show us anything. Let us find it. And he said, I have tears in my eyes because I never had a partner. And I've had a lot of great directors, as have you. And uh, he said, there's no work. I never saw the work, you were just a character. And I said, that's because I knew he'd be there and I don't have to telegraph to the lens or I don't have to show or I don't have to talk louder. And uh, it took Will Forte about six hours before he figured out, hey, they're really interested in Will Forte because Will Forte is the character. So take from you and your life and deal with it your way. And that's what casting is. What Laura did was very good. I mean, the Stephen Mitchell kid is good. Uh, Matthias is amazing. That Connie Britton who played the psychiatrist and the little Gideon girl who was the daughter. I mean, these people, great. Other than those five, Everyone in the movie, everyone is a prisoner doing time. No extras. We shot in the penitentiary at Carson City for the state of Nevada. That's where the program goes on. 37 years they've had this program. And uh, Thomas, who's the last guy you saw on the screen with kind of a long ponytail and everything, um, He's done 37 years, and uh, he was fabulous. They were all fabulous. Now, every one of those people in this program and in that part of the penitentiary, murderers aren't allowed to volunteer for the program, are what they call habitually, physically violent offenders. 
And to me, the best scene in the movie that I've ever seen that makes you understand why you do a movie is in this movie. She sits down, Miss Britton, as a psychiatrist, and the first thing she says to them, uh, you know, and with Messiah, Matthias, he doesn't say anything. Yeah. He talks a lot, but not in this movie. Yeah. And uh, the first thing she says to each prisoner is, how long have you been here? He says, finally, 12 years. And how long was it exactly from the time you committed the act to from when you made the decision to commit it? And of all 12 guys, not one guy said anything more than three seconds. And uh, Matthias says, instantaneous. And the third question is, and what is it you did? And then they tell you. And uh, we're making a movie of it. We're invading their privacy. But they want to talk about it. But they're not going to volunteer. They're not going to come like Boosie and start telling stories and stuff in front of you. you got to dig it out of them. Because they have to try and dig it out of themselves. But there's a flashpoint. And in that flashpoint, um, they go off. It's like referring back. I hate keeping, no, I don't hate, but I, I shouldn't be keeping uh, Laura stories in here. But when she did the tale, um, she had a scene in that movie. Uh, the singer Common was her husband in the movie. And uh, he keeps on her in the scene. He says, you know, you got to talk to somebody about this. She's 44 years old now. You got to talk to somebody. You got to get this out. You got to have somebody help. You can't run around, keep being a victim all the time. And she goes nuts. She slaps him. She runs out of the house and it broke their marriage apart, broke the whole thing apart. Because she keeps saying, I'm not a victim. I'm not a victim. So Laura asked the girl, How did you deal with that? I mean, how did that come out? And she said, I'm not a victim. Because I went along with it, and I was 11. That's why you make that movie. He's been in there 12 years. He doesn't know how to get to step two. He put his wife in a chair for the rest of her life where she could only move half her body and stuff like that. And then his daughter had to help her, raise her. And there are so many things going along, and I saw a path right away where what I could do, because what the guy like my character does in all of these things, whether it's working with animals or people or whatever you're working with, uh, he's a Vince Lombardi. He's a coach. He's got to make him play as hard as he can play every second. Because when you go inside that big ring he's in, and all you have is a long white stick, and all that does is keep him away from you. He's lethal. And he doesn't want to kill you. He doesn't know what killing is, but you're in the way. And he's going to make you understand that. And uh, I just really like I way, the way she unfolds the story, the way she gets into the drug thing. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a non sequitur, but I didn't even know what ketamine was. And then somebody said, oh, no, they sell it on the street. It's a horse tranquilizer. Jesus Christ. And they're selling it as a drug. 
And uh, so that's, I, I just, I'm, I'm very proud of it. I had never seen it until three weeks ago yesterday. And um, I don't like to see movie. Quentin called me yesterday about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And he said, well, I, I just edited your stuff yesterday and finished editing it. All my stuff is with Brad Pitt in the movie. Because uh, I played... You poor thing. Huh? <laughs> you poor thing. No. And I, uh, I, um, I played George Spawn, who's the guy that owned the ranch they all lived on. And so... Uh, I've worked for six geniuses in my life. Directing geniuses. Not in order of importance, but they're Mr. Kazan... Mr. Hitchcock, a kid named Douglas Trumbull, and everybody says, like Steven Spielberg says, why do you always say Douglas is a genius? And uh, do you think, I, I said, I wouldn't know, Prick, you never hired me, so I, I can't give you credit for something. I don't know how you work. I saw what you did with Laura, uh, and so forth and so on, and, and you're magnificent at what you do, but I, uh, a genius, to, oh, anyway, to finish the group, uh, Douglas Trumbull uh, is a phenom because at 18 years old, he won an Academy Award for special effects as a junior at Huntington Beach High School because Douglas Trumbull did the special effects for 2001 when he was 18. He invented slit scanning. And when he showed eight seconds of film to Stanley Kubrick, he says, I, I, I don't want to see it. I don't have a thing here and everything like that. And Douglas said, look, I can take the lamp off your shade, and just run it through my fingers. And you can look, it's only eight seconds long. Douglas finished, dead silence. Kubrick said, where did you get that? And Douglas said, I made it in my garage. He said, bullshit, that can't be done. He said, really? So he calls up Douglas's house. He says, you have a number on you? Will anybody be home? He calls up, the father answers the phone. And the father said, yes. He said, this is Stanley Kubrick. He said, do you have an overweight kid that's eating too many Hershey bars because he's got pimples all over his face? And he's standing in front of me right now. He said, the father said, well, that would be Douglas. <laughs> Kubrick said, uh, I want to borrow his brain for two years. So day after tomorrow, I'm going back to London because I have to make a movie and I want Douglas to work on it. And... Uh, Douglas is saying, go ahead, Dad. Yes, yes. He says, well, he's got finals next week. He said he's in high school. I'll put him in Oxford. How's that? And he can study there in the two years. So Douglas went there. But uh, at the end of the conversation, this is the only reason I throw this in there, he says, uh, uh, Mr. Trumbull, uh, what do you do? He says, oh, I'm just retired, and I tinker around and have some fun with Douglas in the garage with these things he does. He says, he's not in a lab doing this kind of stuff? How does he do that? He said, well, that's his little piece of luggage, <laughs> which I thought was cute. It's a line out of a Chabrol movie called Landru, but uh, at least he knew the line. And he said, uh, uh, Douglas said, go ahead, Dad, tell him, tell him. And he said, oh, I, you know, I was the uh, special effects man on The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> so... There, there you get a lineage of it. But back, back to this film. 
the, the big hope for me is that if you all liked it, you'll tell somebody else to see it. It's, uh, you know, Focus has done an amazing job because they got it in theaters and a lot of people say, well, it'll just limp, limp along. Last week, we were only in four theaters, two in New York and two here. And how do you advertise a movie like this? It's very hard. They got a lame picture of Matthias with the horse, but I mean, nobody knows what it means until you sit through it and, uh, and go through it. And uh, all the credit to her. I mean, she's just an amazing dame. And uh, I think that uh, although the languages were different, uh, I had no trouble communicating with her. And by halfway through the movie, she came up to me one day and she said, you know, when I have people like you and what you've gotten the other people to understand here, it's not hard to direct because I wrote dialogue. I didn't write scenes. I wrote conversations, but very hard conversations. And if people start to act, it would ruin my movie. So let me see the real behavior. And the little girl, well, what happened to Matthias was he had never, ever been in a scene where he was so touched himself like he was when that little girl, he had to explain to her why he was sorry. And that brought an, uh, an enormous response from him that he'd never gone that deep in himself because, and this is what's disgusting, because so many actors don't realize that's okay. That's what you're there for. You're there, I've always called the art of acting very simple. I don't know it's an art, but it's having the ability to be publicly private. When they turn that switch on, you've got to start with your own heart and open it up and you're, you know, sometimes you see, run a lot of actresses. Guys are worse than the actresses, but the closer the lens gets, the more panicky they are. The bigger the lens, they're coming in like, oh, they're going to see. The of course they're going to see. That's what the fuck they're there for. <laughs> you know, they want to see behavior. They want to see what's going on. And when you look back at that whole generation of guys that were before me, it really ended with kind of Paul Newman and Steve McQueen, but I mean, Montgomery Clift and Brando and all the guys that came in the late 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And um, then the actor studio got going at that time, and this was part of the process that you see. But I think the thing is now that we have to get studios, not just independent people, but studios that have more money to not be afraid to make movies about behavior again. Because you know something? You read the script for Nebraska, and you get a couple of things, like when the wife says, you know, oh, I'll go fuck yourselves and everything like that. But it's all on the page. The wonderful thing about what Patty Jenkins did in Monster, it's on the page. If the actresses would just follow the map that she wrote out and not have to act it, but that woman did that. And I know I'm off the subject of Monster again, but I mean of this, but I'm just saying about Monster. At the very end of that 
film, but it's not captured as well as it should. You have to understand, uh, Aileen Warnos, who was the character that she played, uh, had her father's child at 11 years old. There is no DNA testing or anything like that. They lived up in northern Michigan, and you know the parents hated her. She was pregnant, so they just let her have the baby and tossed her and put the baby in an orphanage. Well, at the end of the movie, I mean, at the end of the case, uh, they brought the little girl, the Christina Ricci character, into the court, and she couldn't speak. She was apoplectic. She couldn't get a word out. She was all choked up, and, and right there, right where you are, is Charlize, and she's here. And she's just sobbing, and the judge finally said, is there, is there any way I can get you even not speaking, just to point to the person that you went through all this with. And she finally, you know, just goes and, and then sobs and goes, and they have to take her down. They led her down right off the stand, right past Charlize, who's right there in the front row in the chair at the table, and out the door. When she went by Aileen Warnos, Aileen Warnos looked up in her face and said, I love you, and I get it all. Now, come on. That's why you make movies. You know, go ahead. So I asked one question. <laughs> <laughs> I asked one question, and he answered every single question on this list, and then some. But I want to go back to just what you said about uh, spreading the word about the Mustang. So the Mustang is in theaters nationwide right now. So please do spread the word. It's a wonderful film. I think it's the best movie so far this year. So, you know, please spread the word on social media. Bruce Stern, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for making this literally the easiest Q&A I ever did. <laughs> well, thank you all for coming. And uh, thank you for sitting through it and loving it. The one girl here with the water she left early, I'm sure she was bored shitless. But. <laughs>